0: Hello, you're listening to the Retro Hour Podcast, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news, views, and interviews. I'm Ravi Abbott. I'm Dan Wood. Yes, and we're on episode 10. Double figures. Oh, woohoo! Can't believe it.
1: <laughs> Who'd have thought that when we started the show back in January?
0: Yeah. Ten episodes in. We're finally there. So
1: now we've got a hit to any (laughs) time. Well, actually, it's quite a good week to mention this. that We are now, um, according to the officials at iTunes, new and noteworthy.
0: Oh, yes. We got an email today telling us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now that this was, I will just say, it was spam that we got, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah, it was
0: spam. But um, thank you guys for listening to us on iTunes. Also, we've got, I think, 61 likes extra. This week, which is quite good from last week. On Facebook? Yeah.
1: Yeah, so um, yeah, thank you so much if you liked us on Facebook, actually. If uh, you want to find out what we're up to each week, good way to find out, isn't it, when new stuff's going on and uh, all the shows and events we're going to be at over the summer. So uh, there will be a link to our Facebook page. We've got the little widget down the side now.
0: Yeah, we've got a lovely new website as well and uh, Paul Kitching's. Help with the graphics. Yeah,
1: thank you so much, Paul. Now, if you have a look at theretrohour.com, because I know there will be people who have maybe found us through iTunes, just browsing through and uh, don't know when the show comes out. We're released every Friday. Uh, Download it from iTunes, our website, theretrohour.com. The same place you'll find all the show notes as well, because I get a lot of people messaging me going, I listen on a podcast client, but I can't read the show notes. So if you want to find them They're all
0: available there. They
1: are. And now we've got a few uh, other podcasts we want to give a little mention to this week. Yeah, you've
0: been cheating on us, haven't
1: you, Ben? I have. I was on a podcast called... uh, um, the way back when podcast ah. now this is a new one is only on episode number four now i think um a chap called wayne who got in touch with me he's a british guy um and it's really he has a different person on each week for about 45 minutes to an hour and talks about their history and gaming and technology and um what their interests are you know and how they grew up with computers and all that kind of thing so i did like uh, pretty much a history of me
0: Yeah, so if you want to hear a history of Dan Woods, (laughs) then it will be in the
1: link. Well, he's actually got he's got some big names on as well. Um, (laughs) Shannon Morse, you know Snubsy from Hack Five and Techzilla, and that. So I think she's on his next episode. So. Guy's called Wayne. He's lovely. We'll leave a link in the show notes if you want to check out his podcast. We've got
0: another podcast as well, just to mention, which is RGDS Podcast, and they've just done a great one on the music of Golden Axe 2 and given us a shout, so we'll return the favour.
1: Now, every week on our show, we bring you a notable or noteworthy guest, and we've got a good one this week.
0: Yes, we've got Andrew Barnabas, the guy who did Swift, (laughs) also did some great PlayStation titles. You know, he's just a demo scene master of sound, and he's kind of telling us about all this getting of samples and mm-hmm. kind of all the old school guys, how he managed to blag his way into the industry.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's really good stories, actually. And, uh, you know, he's a guy that started on the Commodore 64 with the SID chip and then went to the Amiga Tracker kind of era. Yeah,
0: PlayStation, yeah. PC. So there'll be uh, a lot of
1: um, demo scene chat as well. Yeah, you know, now virtual reality, actually. He is, isn't he? Yeah, doing virtual reality for Sony. So um, we'll find out more about that. Andrew's on the show in around 35 to 40 minutes from now. Now, getting on to this week's big news stories then, Ravi.
0: Yes, so we have the Nintendo PlayStation. The boot <laughs> ROM has been discovered and distributed.
1: Now, obviously, this was a massive story. Was it last summer?
0: Yeah, yeah. This first
1: came about. Now, for those who missed it, if you were living under a rock about a year ago is now, um, obviously, the you may not know this, but the Sony PlayStation was actually a project that kind of came out of Nintendo, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, it was um,
0: kind of uh, against uh, Panasonic, wasn't it? Or Philips? I think,
1: yeah, it was, it was basically meant to be the answer to um, the, the Mega CD on the Mega Drive and yep. the Philips CDI. So what, um, you know, everyone at the time was building their own CD consoles. So Nintendo went to um, Sony, who did the sound chip for the Super Nintendo, didn't they, Sony? Yeah. So they said, oh, we want a CD add-on. So they were working together on this project that was going to be called the Super Nintendo PlayStation. that was going to either be an add-on to the the Super Nintendo or an all-in-one device. Now, about a year ago, uh, this guy who turns out had no interest in gaming at all, he was going through his attic, and I think his dad used to work for Nintendo or Sony, and he found one of these super nintendo playstation prototypes in a box in his
0: attic yeah people didn't believe it when he posted a picture yeah. online people were like what the hell is this everyone it's called a- bs didn't they they yeah, were like oh you, yeah.
1: you've because made- it was actually yellowed a bit wasn't it like consoles do yeah and they're like oh it's so easy to do just use a bit of paint or something you know what i mean but it was like it turned out he didn't want to power it on which i think kind of added to the mythology of this because a lot of people were saying it hasn't been turned on for like you know twenty five thirty years. If you just plug it in with the wrong power supply, because this guy knew nothing about electronics,
0: it yeah. might just go bang, and then you've lost the only kind of source of
1: <laughs> this super rare. This is probably the rarest gaming prototypes have been found. I'd say so, yeah,
0: well, legendary status. Well, oh,
1: yeah, you think you know this this charted the the move away from Sega and Nintendo was like the the leaders to Sony and where they came from and the yeah. PlayStation project. So uh, anyway, they took it to a gaming show in Japan at the back end of last year, got it verified and uh, they actually got it powered on and it, you know, booted up and everything as well. Now, there's a website called RetroCollect, which is a really good website. We do actually use them for a bit of news on the show. Um, But they've done an article here saying that the boot ROM has been leaked to them.
0: And they're saying that, um, you know, you can put it on an ever.
1: Drive. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> actually load it on an actual Super yeah. Nintendo. Now, they're looking at it here. They've got um, a little screenshot of this Super Disc uh, BIOS kind of boot screen booting on a, an, an emulator. But they've done kind of a strip down, looking at the hex code and all that as well. And uh, they've actually done a bit of research into stuff like the patent numbers that are in here. And they've actually matched that up on, you know, Google Patents. You can search all the old yeah. patents from back in the day. They've uh, linked this up to a patent that was filed by Sony in 1991 by the Sony Corporation. So... If it is a fake, someone's done a lot of research in this. Um and apparently it boots up and gives you the you know, this we can see it here on the screenshot, the super disc boot screen. And it that, says no C D system available. It says yeah, I think mean.
0: it actually says that on the PlayStation prototype as well. So even even on the prototype, you know, you're not booting it into the emulator, it still doesn't read the C <laughs> <laughs> D.
1: Did, did the C D drive not work on this prototype, the fan then?
0: I don't know. I think it might have been powered. Okay. But it wasn't connected. Mm-hmm. It, with the firmware or whatever.
1: I think looking at this, all I said is it's pretty much just a Super Nintendo with a CD-ROM drive in there. I don't think there's any extra kind of you know, PlayStation hardware and that kind of stuff. Yeah. So you're not going to be able to run PS1 games. But if they do manage to get kind of, you know, if you can put this on an EverDrive, maybe you could hack like uh, a cheap CD-ROM drive into the side of your Super <laughs> yeah, Nintendo Yeah, and... just, just
0: create one. <laughs> or, or you know, they may be able to hack the firmware or do some really dodgy stuff.
1: But to... then you could have you know Super Nintendo games that are like six, seven hundred megabytes.
0: So. Ooh. Yeah, that might be kinda of cool.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. there could be actually, you know, more to this than just a curiosity, I think, you know, now that this is in the wild, maybe people will start to uh finally use something from nineteen ninety one.
0: Get get the nerds on it.
1: <laughs> now, speaking of uh, new developments in the world of C D, it seems we talk about a new C D thirty two compilation every week at the moment.
0: Yeah, the scene's thriving and people seem to be just releasing compilations all the time. And this one is the Dizzy Collection, the Ultimate Amiga Dizzy Collection, actually.
1: Now are you a fan of Dizzy?
0: I am. I've, I've actually, uh, been a CD32 collector myself, I've got a copy of The Big Six, which is kind of six Dizzy games. Mm-hmm. E- every other one's five hundred Amiga 500 version chucked on, but Fantastic Dizzy is the AGA version with a full CD soundtrack.
1: Oh, wow. Is this on that Big Six compilation? Then? Yeah, is it? Okay. so,
0: you know, it's uh, Codemasters' release, and they say that it is one of the... The best CD32 titles just because of the CD soundtrack.
1: Well, this guy, it's Amiga J that we're talking about here. And, uh, you know, pretty much all these compilations that we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, Amiga J is a guy that's behind most of them, isn't he? Yeah. Um, but this one, of course, he, he got, his, his attention to detail is really good as well because he doesn't just whack them on a CD with like a crappy little boot screen. He puts like, all the artwork in there, gives you a nice menu that you can select from. But even more importantly, I think he remaps all the controls to the CD32 controller.
0: Yeah, and like looking here, you know, they're not very big games like Fast Food Dizzy, Quick Snacks, and Fantastic. I used to have that on one disc, and uh, I think Quick Snacks was never officially released as well. So some of these are a bit uh, iffy. These did. Digi- Dizzy games, but
1: uh, you know. Well, I mean, Dizzy was it was it was an eight bit game originally, wasn't it? Yeah. so um I know there were ports to sixteen bit platforms, but yeah, I think I had a compilation floppy that had stuff like um, Stunt Car Racer on there and X Copy, and it had loads of utilities. And then, like, I think it took about like a hundred k. There was like Treasure On Dizzy was on there as well. Yeah, that's so, it,
0: tiny games, aren't?
1: They? Yeah, well, that's the thing. So sticking like eleven of them on a CD, you're not running out of space, are you? So. In might as well use that extra space he's got available for music and graphics and all that yeah. kind of thing. So if you want to download this, um, we'll pop a link in the show notes, as always. This is quite an interesting little website that you came across during the week. It's called uh, Save the Sounds.
0: Yes, it's a, it's a really good little website. It's um, a guy's basically compiling sounds from the past <laughs> that uh, we've forgotten about or may need saving. And uh, he calls it the Museum of Endangered Sound. And uh, you can basically... Click on these little GIFs and mm-hmm. it will play your sounds from the past. Should we go ahead, Dan? And see? <laughs> you want me to test you here, then? Yeah, you it? need right, to okay. test me. So, yeah, Bear looking... in mind, I have been on this site for playing <laughs> on it for quite a while. So okay, thought... I'm
1: going to pick some obscure ones, then, okay? Yeah. What's this? Oh, God. Is that a warning? No. Play it again. These machines still use a similar sound today. Mac? Is it something new? An, to do an with old power PC Mac startup, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> what should we have? Let's do this one. <laughs> now, this is not a modem.
0: Dial tone or no? Oh yeah, uh, dial up 56k, isn't it? No, it's not a modem. This is a Sinclair
1: Spectrum loading.
0: <laughs> oh, God, I'm I'm sorry. I'm not a Spectrum guy. People are probably going St. Clair spectrum shouting at the uh, radio now.
1: Do you have another one? What's
0: this yeah.
1: one? ICQ. Oh, AOL Messenger, nearly.
0: Oh, I thought it was ICQ. <laughs> that's a, that's, that's a, ICQ. Oh, my God.
1: <laughs> one more.
0: Ah, yes, the heavenly sound of Windows 95. <laughs> um no, actually, it was uh, Hospital, I remember.
1: <laughs> there was actually one Windows startup sound. Because um, Windows 95 was quite chirpy and friendly, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. I remember we used to use this at school.
0: It's very futuristic,
1: <laughs> though. <laughs> I to crap myself when I heard that. <laughs> That's Windows NT starting up. But yeah, this website, though, it's um savethesounds.info, if you want to have a look at it. Um, Tamagotchi on there as well. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think audio is such a big part of the experience, isn't it? Everyone talks about, um, you know, graphics and... Oh, there we go, it's going to go. <laughs> Everyone talks about the graphics and, uh, you know, the, the packaging and the actual systems. But I think audio is generally kind of a forgotten part
0: of the experience, isn't it? It really is. You know, when you play people old games and stuff, mm-hmm. they go, oh, I didn't know it sounded this fabulous. Yeah, and yeah. That's always the first thing that they say, you know.
1: I think it's kind of up there with, like, smells, isn't it, as well? It's kind of like, you know, something yeah. that can just transport you back. So uh, I think it's important to preserve this stuff as well because um, there can't be many other websites where you've got, you know, a dot matrix printer.
0: <laughs> the and fact, I so. guess, uh, you know, the lifespan of some of these stuff was quite small. Yeah, so, well, like I mean, you know the messaging services and stuff. So
1: I was watching this show that's been on the BBC recently. It's called Back in Time for the Weekend. Have yeah, you seen that? yeah,
0: yeah. I've been watching that. It's great. Yeah, well,
1: it's a family. If you haven't seen it, it's a family who um, they every episode they move into a different decade, don't they? And they yeah, live their so life. They,
0: they start from like the fifties uh, yeah. and go up to modern. Well, even into the future, they're doing Future Tech as the next one.
1: Well, the last one was nineties, um, 90s, 90s, so. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah really. but I think the biggest thing, and even the girl in the show, she's only about fifteen. Um, they got like a PC and then they got like one of those IMAX, didn't she? And she yeah. said, "We well, only got that three years ago. But I think it was this era. Technology seemed to move a lot quicker than it does now, you know. New consoles came out like, you know, the Xbox One and the PS4. It was nearly a decade after the last generation, wasn't it? But you think of the 90s, you went from like the, you know, Amiga CD32 to the the Jaguar to the... Yeah. The um, PlayStation, or within like three years, it was. And
0: for two or three of those years, I was using ICQ. Yeah, you know, and every day, and I was getting uh oh, uh oh, all the time. <laughs> yeah, that's all sound one. like a
1: lemming to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think you know, it's important to preserve these because these are really nostalgic. The stuff you think, oh god, I remember that. You know what I mean? So. Um, it's a great website, SaveTheSounds.info, and I'm sure that you'll be uh, adding to it as time goes on.
0: I totally forgot about my ICQ days. <laughs> <laughs> Do
1: you remember your login number?
0: Oh, God, no. <laughs> it and might there's... be something like
1: 951660. It people will start ticket. trying to log in, Dan. i have been trying myself now, yeah. <laughs> now, 3D printing retro console cases.
0: Yes, this is really good. So these are kind of console cases that people have been printing, but at the moment, 3D printers are... Uh, kind of small, the amount of stuff you can do. So mm. they're making like little Raspberry Pi cases, kind of Game Boy style cases, small little arcade units. And they're amazing. You know, these designs are kind of ones that can be shared throughout the 3D printing community. So you, well, know, you can
1: download your own and.
0: Yeah, someone makes their own Raspberry Pi NES case mm-hmm. and then you can download it on your 3D printer. That's
1: crazy. Um, isn't it? <laughs> it still <laughs>
0: blows my mind 3D printing. Well, they're actually talking about um, how they started. F- 3D printing human parts. Yeah, so, knees and stuff and yeah, joints yeah, and that kind of thing. Yeah, things like that.
1: Won't be long until you can print yourself a girlfriend out. That's it, yeah. <laughs> but you are looking here as well, and it says you can download these uh, 3D print files for free, as you said, you know, print them out and enjoy them yourself. Um, I mean, there are even websites you can use where you can send the files, and they'll send it back in the post to you.
0: But these aren't crappy consoles as well. There's, like, this NAS looks... Giant. Have you seen How the PlayStation?
1: Look at the PlayStation one. How cute yeah. is that? <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: amazing.
1: But these are, I mean, we talked about the Raspberry Pi 3 last week, and these um, these fit the Raspberry Pi 3. Mm. And because the, the Pi's actually got a DSP port that you can plug a display into, some of these cases here, you can actually, it's got the room for a screen in there too, so you can basically make your own Game Boy with the emulation on there.
0: Yeah, totally. Maybe in the future you'll get your consoles delivered via a printer. <laughs> That's
1: great. I'm sure you will. Like, you know, with the PlayStation 6, you just download it and print it out. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so uh, you'll pop a link in the, in the show notes if you want to check these out. Very, very interesting, though. And... uh yeah, if you've got a Raspberry Pi, there's even one here you can print out your own arcade cabinet for them. So oh, wow. I'm, I'm doing well, with my Raspberry Pis actually. I've set two of them up now. So um, yeah,
0: what are you using your three yet, or is it not right?
1: Yeah, or... yeah, my three. Yeah, my three is also. I, mean, I actually did a video for it on YouTube. Um, we've now got you know shiny new website as we mentioned before. Ravi and I's YouTube channels yeah. are on there. So if you want to see my Raspberry Pi three setup video, I've noticed. though, have you seen? Apparently, this one gets really hot.
0: Yeah, hundred degrees. Hundred degrees like
1: Celsius, apparently. Yeah, and. I've been using the old chargers that I use in my 2 and I'm getting that little rainbow in the corner quite a lot no, even, no. even with the 2.1. Okay. So I think I need a beefier power supply for well, it.
0: Well, I've had to recently go back to the Raspberry Pi 1. Okay. After using the 2 and everything. It is so slow. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> come on. We've got them in here. There's, there's one up
1: there I think this room we're in now but you can even, yeah, you know, just trying to do anything on it. You forget. Oh. You know, I was trying to get a website day. I was
0: like, come on. You know yeah, I mean? I'd installed Linux and it was like open browser. Yeah. And, uh, Unusable, it was amazing isn't it, really? what people were doing with it and... That was just a few years Two ago.
1: years ago, yeah. <laughs> Talking about things coming on quick, they still are, you know yeah. what I mean? Now, this is a pretty sad story. I mean, I think 2016, you know, we talked about Dave Needle passing away. With someone else who um, I think modern society
0: owes a lot to has passed away. Definitely. Um, you know, the kind of communications revolution.
1: Probably the biggest revolution in human history for yeah, communication.
0: Definitely. Ray
1: Tomlinson, who was the inventor of email.
0: Yes, and the selector of the at symbol.
1: Yeah, so he's the guy that actually decided that the, the at symbol was going to be used to address people on email. Yeah. And the crazy thing about this is, you look through, not only you think, all oh, right, email, when did, when did you start using email? When did you get your first address? Um, Hotmail, probably. Yeah. Same you know? here. Yeah. I actually got a bit depressed the other day because I got an email off Hotmail saying something like, you know, you've been using it for 18 years or something. I was like, oh, shit, I'm old. <laughs> but it turns out he invented email in 1971 and uh it wasn't a university he was at university at the time but this wasn't an assignment he got or anything in fact he was playing around with the mainframes at MIT it says here
0: it was for the uh, ARPANET wasn't
1: it yeah well, ARPANET that was a pre-runner to the internet wasn't yeah it?
0: so if if you guys don't know there was lots of kind of networks for the internet but email was a protocol that was before the world wide web
1: oh long 20 years before 20 it, yeah. years
0: before but you know instant Delivery of mail. It's amazing. Well, I love
1: the fact that when he made the email, he, he revealed in an interview with Forbes in the mid '90s. He said, "You know, he was worried that he might get in trouble for uh, using." the university's computer time for something he wasn't meant to he was just fooling around and he came up with arguably you know, the most important communication tool in human history just accidentally yeah. really
0: if, if, if the email service went at my work I think <laughs> the place would be in pandemonium you know. But
1: you think of everything else that has changed since like, the earliest days of computers email's always been there
0: Yeah, yeah, and, and honestly we've not moved on that far no. like, If you look at Twitter it's 32 characters mm-hmm. It's in real time fair dues it's not being delivered We still can't deliver that kind of information in as good a way as email
1: and it still uses the at symbol. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, true.
1: So rest in peace, Ray Tomlinson. He's only seventy-four as well, far too young. Definitely. Now a Super Mario theme park is coming to Japan.
0: Yes. So they're gonna build a $250 million Super Mario theme park in Japan. This reminds me of Sega. World, do you remember Sega that? World? Yeah? I do
1: what in uh in London, yeah. The yeah.
0: Trocadero that was a really amazing place. I used to force my dad to take me there.
1: I remember seeing that. I'm like, I think first time I saw it was on Games Master or something when it
0: first opened, yeah. It was in the late 90s, wasn't it? I think it was about mid 90s. I think it was about 94, 95. It might have been okay. Because yeah. I remember later on, they used to do lots of London, hack- London hacking meets, there. Mm. even though Sega World had shut down, yeah. The hackers would still meet at the bottom of Sega World. <laughs> <so>. <laughs>
1: Well, we were talking out there before, and you mentioned about the escalators.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, it was like designed like a giant pinball machine, so you kind of go on the escalators, and they'd have these rings around them, and it was like... Sonic like Spinball, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. and you'd have a, a big wall of CRTs at the side, and it was kind of... You'd go up this central circular shaft, and then there'd be all these different floors with uh, go-karting, yeah. people spinning around in gyroscopes, uh, scope, my dad going mad on... Them. What is it? Dance, dance, revolution. You know? <laughs>
1: but because um, I lived in London like for a few years before I came to Nottingham, I moved here about what 2010. I think I moved here. Yeah. But I'd often go in uh, the Trocadero and it would still have all of the kind of Sega World layout and the escalators were still like the rings and all that. But it'd be like just, you know, crappy little market stores and stuff by then with a little arcade at the side. But I was quite sad to read, I haven't actually been in there for about two years, but apparently they're turning it all into a hotel now. Oh, no. But there were some pictures on a website of the top floor in Sega World that had kind of been abandoned since it closed Sega World down, and apparently there's still some of the old signage up there and that kind of thing oh, on, the, wow. on the top, like, you know, this secret floor at the top still. So a couple of guys had snuck up with some cameras. There might be a video on YouTube to it, if I can find it. I'll...
0: Yeah, I think there's actually some, vid- some old videos of Sega World anyway on yeah.
1: YouTube. Yeah, there is a couple on there, but yeah. there was also, because um, this Nintendo thing is going to be a theme park, there was actually a Sega theme park in uh, in Australia, I think it was, in Sydney.
0: Okay.
1: Um, it was only up for about four years, but because... I'm quite into looking at abandoned porn, as you yeah. might be able to tell from, you know, that Sega World story then. But there's actually... Um, it was abandoned pretty much for about seven years, I think. Yeah. So it shut down in 2000. They didn't demolish it until 2008, actually, looking at this. And uh, there are a group of guys that went through and took loads of pictures of, like, you know, the, the Sonic kind of burger shack and all that kind of thing and the old abandoned rides. A lot of them were still Dystopian there.
0: Dystopian Sega <laughs> World, you know. <laughs>
1: but it sucks. I mean, that, that was built in 97 when Sega... All right, you now the Saturn was out by then and yeah. their glory days had kind of gone a bit. But it was... Um, but I think the fact that Nintendo are kind of taking a chance and doing something similar.
0: It's really good. You know, um, they've said it will be completed by 2020.
1: In time for the Tokyo Olympics. Yes, to support, and yeah. it's going to
0: be all Super Mario and you kind of Pokemon and all of this stuff.
1: It still blows my mind that 2020 is four years away.
0: Yeah, it's crazy. I saw
1: that I thought, that's ages away. Yeah, 10 years, isn't
0: it? <laughs> and, and you know Nintendo, they're a bit... They're a bit struggling, and we don't mm-hmm. don't want to see them go the way of Atari or Commodore or any of these guys, you know. So, or even Sega. Or even <laughs> Sega, yeah, indeed. Can you believe all the giants that have gone? You know, Nintendo is yeah. like one of the last standing uh, kind of old school game companies, isn't it? And they
1: are, you know, they're, they're kind of at a stage now where you know they're, they're really swimming for the life, aren't they? They don't want yeah. to sink, but it's. Uh, I think this is quite interesting, though. I mean, Japan has got such a different culture to over here. They tried to do this in like America or England; it'd go bankrupt within two years, I think. Yeah. But. In Japan, the arcade industry is still thriving. It's still arcades,
0: yeah. You can go over there and it's like, you know, like you, they used to be here in the 90s. There's even this game, uh, Kaplinko or Kaplunko, that, that just Japanese are obsessed with. And it's like pin, pinball with like a hundred balls. <laughs> and <you're> just gonna <laughs> kind you just to We find it in bars and all that. <laughs> yeah, there, yeah. Too. And they just sit there. Playing it, but I think you know because Se-
1: Sega do make arcade units still, don't they? But I think they're pretty much exclusively for Japan now. Yeah. Although that said, in Nottingham there is a new little arcade that's opened here in town. I saw in uh, the corner house in Nottingham. Mm. I was there on Saturday. Um, I also saw
0: photos of you bowling me. I you was, misses. yeah. Was the, uh... It's
1: a great little arcade, though, and they've got some of the. Um, it's kind of the you know the Sonic um, basketball one from. Yeah, it's yeah. probably from about 2000 2001 because it's got the old you know, Sonic Adventure logo on it and all that. The
0: crazy thing that I saw was, um, I, I actually went past there the other day mm-hmm. and I saw that they had a lot of Android games, like Crossy Road, if you've ever played and they Crossy they got Flappy Road. Bird there as well. Flappy, Flappy Bird, Queen, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you've just got a big button and you've yeah. just got to bash it. And it's like taking these mobile... Casual mm. games onto a giant arcade yeah. unit actually works quite well. Because I've
1: always said, you know, I miss the days of going to arcades. And I was in town with the missus on Saturday, went a bit of food, and then I just walked past it. I was like, "She's oh yeah, it's been there about seven months." I was like, "What? <laughs> what I <do>? did you <laughs> tell me?" Yeah. So we, I dragged her in there and we're playing there. There's Outrun two cabinets in there yeah, and stuff as well. You see the Star
0: Wars one. They've got a full yeah. I didn't have a go on that Star though. Yeah.
1: But yeah, it's it's just cool to go and hang out in an arcade again. It felt very different to what it did back in the old days. Maybe mm. it's because I'm an adult now, but I imagine if you went to one in Japan, it probably feel kind of similar. Maybe. You know,
0: Yeah, yeah, well, maybe there'll probably still be guys
1: smoking in there. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, if you're going over for the uh, the
0: Tokyo Olympics, make sure you have a look at
1: this Super Mario theme park opening in 2020. £250 million investment.
0: Yeah, if they've not spent the £250 on <laughs> saving themselves. Yeah, actually, yeah, we, we might need it for the Olympics, actually.
1: Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, have you heard of AmiKit?
0: I have, and I used to write guides for it for the um, EEE PC, which was this tiny little Asus PC back in the was day. Was that the first netbook? Yeah, 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 I remember that yeah. thing. Really slow.
1: Well, um, yeah, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> Netbooks didn't last very long, did <laughs> oh, okay. they? That was a phase that came and gone.
0: Yeah, it'd give you, like, cripple your fingers. <laughs> yeah, see,
1: yeah, I remember trying to type, you'd have to use your little pinkies. Yeah. You? <laughs> but um, Amikit, if you haven't heard of it, it's um, to put it simply for guys that are not into Amiga emulation, it's basically a bunch of programs that you can install on an Amiga emulator, and it gives you all the most used essential programs
0: and and it's uh, all set up as well, isn't yeah. it? So, like, you want to go on the internet, you just load it up and open a browser. The browser's it's, already included, too. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah. yeah, it's not like you have to install everything and do it through this massive configuration slog.
1: And it even makes it look sexy to put all modern icons on there as an FTP. Like, oh yeah, several well, One
0: thing I don't like about it is why have you got a start menu on there dude remove that <laughs> but yeah
1: i noticed that as well do you remember the stage in the mid-90s there when all amiga users had there's so many start menu clones
0: amiga be released. Start yeah, like, yeah, yeah
1: why does everyone want to be like windows you know i mean we hated yeah. windows a couple of years ago um, well, actually i was
0: watching that fine brothers <laughs> video uh we know about the fine brothers controversy but yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had a really good one which was kids using windows 95 oh, okay and that's just come out today and The hilarious part was that um, they had a monitor on top of CRT and they would just sit there and turn the CRT on. Thinking it's a computer. Yeah, and it's like, (laughs) no, you've got to turn the actual unit on underneath, you know. God, man. And that was the first use of the start, man, in 95.
1: even now, you know, on... On a modern desktop PC, you'd still have to turn the monitor and the PC on separately. It proves that they don't even use desktops, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Modern just, yeah. Uh, but getting back to this um, AmiKit, AmiKit X, so they're using kind of the, the Mac terminology there, AmiKit 10. Yeah. They've just released a preview of it now. There is um, Aeon who make um, a lot of the Amiga OS 4 boards. They've actually come up with this thing called the Alice Laptop. I'm going
0: to try and remember what it was. Amiga-like... Uh, uh, in uh, creative <laughs> emulation, haven't
1: <laughs> I? think you got every single one of them wrong, actually, Ravi. <laughs> it was a laptop incorporating a classic experience.
0: Oh, there you go. <laughs> so uh,
1: this is really just a standard PC laptop that um, comes pre-installed with Amiga emulation on board. Yeah. But you can run, um, like all your old games and all that, with WHD Lugs. It's emulating sixty eight k But with this new um, version of AmiKit, you can also run Linux apps straight oh, wow. on the Amiga's workbench. Okay. That's so, really good. Well, they've released this video today, video preview, and it shows VLC playing a video on the Amiga's workbench.
0: Wow, that's pretty useful actually because there's not a lot of things that are compatible, you know. Mm-hmm. Office suites Amiga lacks a lot, on. yeah. So, you know, you could just open, I don't know, LibreOffice yeah. or
1: yeah. And looking at it as well, I mean, it runs in kind of a, a window here that looks a bit like you know, when you open um, UAE for example on Windows and you get it yeah. in a it's in its own environment, which it is at the moment. But I'm sure it's they can do like transparent kind of skins and stuff to make it look like it's part of the OS, which I'm sure you know they're probably going to be working on a bit more. Um, but this, uh, <laughs> I love what they're calling this. Uh, this uh, Linux kind of um, layer in there. It's called Rabbit Hole. It's kind of like uh, you know, like Alice in Wonderland, through the And
0: also, you can get this on a, a USB stick. Yeah, Which is quite cool. Out. So yeah, you could just it. like go and stick it in any machine and boot off the USB, I think.
1: We'll pop a link if you want to find out a bit more. This is a, a news article on Amiga World. Now, I thought this is quite an interesting uh, talking point. Getting them started right was the, uh, the subject on, okay. um, on Reddit. And uh, I've seen guys on 4chan are probably in like their 30s now. They've got kids and they want to get the kids into gaming. So what they've been doing is you know, they say, I want my son to have, like, you know, a good all-rounded experience of gaming. So he's not allowed a Wii U, he's not allowed a PlayStation 4, he's got to have an Atari 2600, that's all he's allowed. <laughs> and then next year, he's allowed a Super Nintendo for, no, an
0: NES for a year. Luddites. Yeah, well, it's like, <laughs> pretty
1: much, they want their kids to experience gaming from the beginning Yeah. up till now because they think it will give them some kind of, uh, more of an appreciation of it.
0: Okay, more more of a kind of uh, a rounded understanding of the development of stuff, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So that is one argument to it. What, what do you think of doing that? I, I don't know, because originally I thought, wouldn't it be good if I just like closed my kid's mind off, had them in a closed, meagre environment, <laughs> and then r- grew them all the way up to kind of modern day, and then gave them a PC and they'd realise how crap it was. Mm-hmm. But I, I think no, actually. There's so much good stuff out there for kids at the moment. The Raspberry Pi, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's starting to learn coding on it. You don't need to go back to that old stuff. You know, there's new stuff. There's uh, kind of gyroscopes, accelerometers, there's uh, Bluetooth. There's loads of really cool stuff that they can do. So I think... It's kind of making your kid irrelevant. Yeah. It's like dressing your kid in flares when it's not the 70s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know?
1: Well, there's this article on The Onion of this, uh, you know, it's a fake article, but this dad who uh, didn't want his daughter to listen to Justin Bieber and that, you know, he, she got to listen to proper music. So there's a picture of her with like a talking heads on vinyl. Yeah, yeah. And she's like, oh, gee, thanks, dad. You yeah.
0: know what I mean? Like, but like in the playground, have you heard the new Madonna song, Just Like a Prayer? And it's <laughs> you know what like, I mean? what are you on about?
1: I think if your kids take an interest in it, but, uh, you know, then great. I, I've got guys who are retro gaming guys on Facebook and I see them at the weekends, you know, sitting down with the kids and playing like James Pond and that. And I think if the kids are like, oh, you know, I want to try dad's games and that, wonderful.
0: But I, I think it's a bit different as well now because when we were kids, it was like everyone was chasing that new technology mm-hmm. and chasing the latest but There was game. no
1: retro really then, was it? No, no. <laughs> yeah, but been around long enough. But,
0: but now people are like, you know, Minecraft, that's been around for... And What is it? Ten years now, or five years? It must be yeah, six, seven, maybe yeah. But you know, kids just get into Minecraft and then they just stay there. Mm-hmm. It's not like the yeah, we I want to be five. I want Yeah, we yeah. were just constantly buying up the latest game, the fastest one. Mm-hmm. You know,
1: I think there are, and I think some guys in the retro gaming community are probably guilty of this, and I don't think we are. But guys who kind of just live in the past.
0: Yeah, yeah. I th- I think they do. They they're not willing to accept that mm-hmm. you know stuff's going to move on and. That's quite bad, actually, because then they're always doing comparisons and it's like they're totally different things. You know, virtual reality and stuff is going to be amazing. And yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. And we're, I we're
1: both guys that love modern tech as well as old stuff. Yeah, we? yeah. We wouldn't, just happen to do a retro
0: podcast. Yeah, if I had, had kids, well. I wouldn't <laughs> want to deny him virtual reality and have him on the uh, virtual boy. Yeah. <laughs> <You> know,
1: <laughs> know I mean? A friend asked me um, on Facebook recently, put a thread like, you know, if you could go back to like... Uh, 1982 and live there again would you or something that I was born that year you know what I mean but yeah. it's like the fact is I really would not go back in time like even to like 20 years ago over now I'd rather be here now
0: yeah I'd go back in time and punch all of the board of Commodore <laughs> in the face and then <laughs>
1: come back I, I go back for a day don't get me wrong yeah. awesome, <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't want to live there again not having access to always on broadband internet and yeah. I think you get bored out your brain in like five minutes Everybody really do but I think now you've got access to all the best of the stuff we had then you think of the Amiga you had when you were a kid. Now you've got an Amiga with a 160 gigabyte hard disk in there with every single game on there. Just that, playing know. Duke
0: Nukem 3D on yeah. a Vampire 600, you know, it's <laughs>
1: you know. You wouldn't believe that if you said that when you were a kid. You can just literally download any game you want for
0: your computer in a second. Yeah. I think now we're living in the best time for technology and gaming ever. Oh, definitely. And I think because it's so unknown as well, it's like with gaming you knew for a while what it was going to be it was going to be cd and then mm. video would come in we knew that video was going to become big now we knew virtual reality is going to come big mm. but what's after that no yeah, one yeah. there wasn't there wasn't a race for any tech so i think it's all new isn't it
1: i mean getting back to the topic we're talking about here about kids i think they are growing up in like you know probably an even more exciting time than we did in many ways yeah. they haven't got kind of the you know I think so, a lot of it was very
0: unknown when we were kids. and Well, we had the whole infa- communications revolution, yeah. didn't we? we? had the, uh, the they, They've got the interaction revolution with the tablets and the kind of, you know, ways of talking to each other, where before it was just we don't have to use a payphone, we've got a mobile <laughs> now, you know? You know
1: what, though? What blew my mind? I was reading an article in, um, I think it was The Guardian it was in, it was this guy, and he's about 26, and I think he's got a younger, like, stepsister, and she's 14. Mm. And... She's like really, she's got like, I'm not exactly sure how Snapchat works. I'm not a big user of Snapchat. But she sends something like 350 Snapchats every single day. Mm. And she's, you get rep on there, I think it's called. Yeah. And he has basically said, you know, he wanted to, he's like one of the technology guys for The Guardian. He wanted to understand it a bit more. So he said, well, I've got my 14-year-old sister. And she was showing him how to use Snapchat. And apparently she can reply to like 100 Snapchats in like 10 minutes. She's just got, did, 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 taking selfies. Doesn't even read them, apparently. Swipe, 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 click, 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 click. And he's a guy who's like, he's 26. You'd still consider him a young man, but he's like, I couldn't get my head around this. I'm like, teenagers are communicating in such a different way. They are, totally. And using technology, you know, we can't get our heads around it. It's like,
0: totally. we're in our now. And, it, and it's now, but... also that constant kind of access as well. Yeah. You know, it's like, if they're not talking to you on WhatsApp or Facebook, it's on another Snapchat. Or yeah. You know, there's no getting away from it now. Yeah. You know, before we could like chat to people and then go and watch TV with your parents, yeah. top of the pops and then you know, but now it's just bam 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 if bam. If you didn't log bam. on to
1: IRC, you know you wouldn't hear from them like a week you know yeah, what I mean? yeah, but it's like
0: it. Or if the person wasn't online. Yeah. You know, you,
1: you know. All all the kids are doing that now, and I think, you know, if you only give them a Commodore sixty four, they're gonna miss out on quite a lot, aren't they? <laughs> <under.
0: laughs> They'll just try and get a Twitter client. Yeah. Or <laughs>
1: well you can't do that, can't you? Yeah. <laughs> so next story then, MAME.
0: Oh, Mame. Our
1: MAME is wonderful, um, especially, you know, we said then about things that blew our mind today that we didn't have when we were kids, having every single arcade in your house.
0: Yeah, that you can run on pretty much anything.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know? Well, now MAME is uh, open source.
0: Oh, excellent. That's great, because it's, it's a really good engine for just playing kind of arcade images.
1: Well, I've just read something. Can you believe that MAME's been going for 19 years? Oh, wow. (laughs) So after 19 years, um, they've basically tracked down everyone that's ever contributed to this project. Apparently, it took them the last 10 months to get in touch with everyone. Everyone's basically said, you know, that's fine. Um, Release it under uh, the general public license, GPL. The fact that they've now made it open source, I'd imagine that's going to mean that, you know, people can bundle it with projects and you can do... Yeah,
0: yeah. So you could probably get it preloaded on hardware now Mm -hmm. and it'll make it a lot more easier for people that don't have this kind of Niche configuration, geeky knowledge.
1: Yeah, cause it's quite hard to set up
0: sometimes, isn't yeah, it? You know, especially with ROMs and stuff like this. Yeah,
1: what we mentioned before the ROMs you can get them from archive.org. You know, as a a massive torrent if you want them. But um, people are probably going to make their own kind of builds of this now. Maybe unofficial kind of. Well, you know, it doesn't have to be unofficial anymore. Or official yeah. different versions of it, and so it's quite cool to see where it will go. You know, port to other platforms and that kind of stuff. There might and, be
0: like kind of mods coming out for it, or, or weird, way, yeah. weird things that will do different stuff.
1: Even just looking at it and seeing like you know
0: how it works is.
1: Quite interesting, isn't it? Now, this is a headline that really uh, leapt out at me when I read it. Um, Nintendo is bringing back the snares.
0: Clickbait.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Now. There is, um, I've got a Wii U and I've got a 3DS as well, and for a couple of years now they've kind of had this, um, I can't remember, it's some like the virtual Nintendo store or something. What it is, it's it's basically running old Nintendo system games on their modern platforms. That you can download? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So it's all DLC, you know, you get it off um, the Nintendo store. Uh, But they are going to be bringing out um, a special edition of the 3DS XL that looks like an old Super Nintendo.
0: Oh wow, this looks really nice. This reminds me of the PlayStation 4 they did. A, oh, like, the 20th anniversary edition yeah, or whatever Yeah, the original it was. one, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah that, I remember the PS4, that was grey, wasn't it? And the buttons yeah. were all like the triangle and that, like on the original. Uh, but this, you're looking at it here. So it is, you know, it's a 3DS XL. Um, but it's got the the styling of the top of the Super Nintendo or the Famicom because it's a Japanese I model. super
0: respect for having this. <laughs> like, it would look so cool playing on it.
1: Well, it is. It's that old grey colour scheme and even the buttons are like, you know, the same. Um, blue, red, yellow and green like they were on the SNES. Yeah. Uh, They are saying that this is only going to be released in Japan, apparently though.
0: So So, um, it'll become rare and expensive. (laughs) Nintendo
1: stuff's expensive as it is, isn't it? But yeah, so it's uh, well, there's no plans yet, apparently. But um, it's going to sell for $190 apparently in Japan. So worth a trip out there to get a few of these, isn't it? (laughs) And uh, visit the arcade while you're out there as well. The uh, the theme park, check out the Olympics, do it all. Uh, Right then, final topic. this is quite interesting. Haunted video games. should have saved this for Halloween, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have forgotten by then, you know, my <laughs> frameworks. Now, uh, this is a new game. Um, it's a roguelike game, so it's, t- you know, turn by turn. Mm-hmm. And it's called Spellraiser. Now, there's an alpha available now that you can download for free if you want to try it out. And it's kind of, it's, they say it's a haunted video game from 1981. That's the premise. And looking at it, it's very kind of Tron looking, isn't it? It's all that neon and...
0: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of an above view thing as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so you know, it's a rogue game, pretty much. So the story is that it is an old video game from 1981 um, that got abandoned, never got released, apparently due to um, problems in development and testing, and then someone's found this code in like a warehouse 30 years later, uh, converted it to modern systems, and then it starts taking on a sinister life of its own, apparently.
0: Well, I'm watching the trailer at the moment, and every five seconds this crazy kind of kaleidoscope's
1: Keeps looks like it's glitching, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, there's even stuff like DOS code and all that in there as well that you kind of go into. So, I think it looks really cool, you know, for someone who I, I do get a nostalgic kick off that kind of visual style anyway.
0: Yeah, yeah. And these kind of uh video game legends, which are, are really interesting, you know, these kind of little stories about the past and what might have happened.
1: Well, this got us looking at um, an article that I read a few years ago. Um, it's on a website called listverse.com. And this is the top ten creepy video game urban legends. Okay. Now I mention two of them on here, two of the most famous ones. Um, one of them is called Kill Switch. Yep. Now apparently this was a game that really existed in 1989, um, and it was made in the uh, Soviet Union just before the fall of it. Okay. That went in, in, and they had Tetris
0: the... coming from the Soviet Union, and yeah, yeah. so it's yeah.
1: Soviet games didn't the government actually own them? Didn't they? I remember seeing the guy from actually yeah, didn't get yeah. any money something, which didn't is it? interesting because
0: <laughs> they were selling well in America yeah. during the Cold War. Exactly, which, yeah. Yeah.
1: bizarre. Uh, but apparently, this was one of the first survival horror games. So in this game, you had two characters to pick from. You could either be a little girl or a demon.
0: Okay,
1: and uh, you had to abandon, you know, go through an abandoned coal mine and battle of the monsters and demons and all that. And uh, most people would pick the demon because it's cool to the blame with a little girl. But apparently, um, nobody ever managed to complete the game with the demon because when you did, just as you got to the end, this game would completely erase all traces of itself from your hard disk permanently.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. So, like, <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't be able to copy it. Yeah, or, yeah, yeah, no one
1: knew that we are. You know, you play the game, it gets deleted. If, you know, if this was true, there probably would be some code out there, somewhere yeah, you'd think, yeah. but, you know, it is an urban legend. However, it I- I- got more interesting when we got to 2005. Now, an unopened copy of this game, apparently on a physical format, um, what well, do you think? You'd just reinstall it, wouldn't you? If it was on a floppy or whatever. But there you yeah, go. Yeah. Copy um, that floppy. <laughs> but um, apparently, it surfaced on eBay, and it was bought for uh, seven hundred and thirty-three thousand dollars. Wow. By a man from Japan. Now he meant to do um, a series of YouTube videos documenting the gameplay and showing and all that, but apparently, he only posted one video, and that was him sitting at his computer screen crying. <laughs> And no one's ever heard anything about it since. That
0: is so surreal.
1: (laughs) So, uh, yeah, that is, you know, one interesting video game legend. (laughs) Have you ever seen the Haunted Majora's Mask video?
0: No, I've not seen that.
1: Now, this was, um, apparently this guy, he was uh, on a a market stall and he found a blank N64 cartridge with Majora's Mask written on it and a black marker pen. Yeah. And um, when he put the game in, he noticed there was a save game on the cartridge called Ben. So he ignored it and tried to start a new game but found out that apparently all of the other characters in the game would still call him Ben in the game. Okay. So he deleted the file off the, off the cartridge and thought, right, you know, this is pissing me off. And then he found the game had become really erratic, like the music could start playing backwards apparently in the game, and uh, his character got followed around by a statue, basically Link following himself around the game, with a creepy smile on his face. And then the next day, the Ben file is back on the cart again along with a new file that just said Drowned underneath. So he had Ben Drowned. That's what it was. <laughs> wow. And then every time he played the game, those two files would appear and creepy messages would appear across the screen. His character would just instantly die in the game.
0: You're scaring me, Dan. So,
1: <laughs> <laughs> but I think the most famous one, we'll finish on this, is um, an arcade called Polybius.
0: Polybius, OK.
1: Now apparently this appeared, this mysterious black arcade cabinet, in the early 1980s, around the time of like, you know, Tempest and Pac-Man, Asteroids, mm. all that kind of thing. And an arcade in Oregon and it was the only one of its kind. And all the kids that played it suffered health problems after including amnesia, blackouts, nausea, seizures, headaches, night terrors. <laughs> and in some, some cases, apparently, a few kids committed suicide after playing this game. Wow. Now, apparently... The guys that worked in the arcade said they didn't know where it came from and every now and then some men in black would come and kind of fiddle around with the circuit boards <laughs> in the back.
0: So Maybe it's a really crap company or something, you don't know.
1: <laughs> Bad refresh rate, but there was. Yeah. It was referenced on The Simpsons when Bart was in an arcade once, so you can see there is a, a Polybius arcade next to him and it says property of the US government on the bottom of it. So
0: Wow. <laughs> well, on this kind of theme, it, there's a really good book called Ready Player One which is about to become a movie and uh, that's all about these kind of It's about virtual reality, future and stuff, but it all goes back to these arcade games, Tempest, all Mm -hmm. of these kind of little tricks in the game and stuff. And it's a really good kind of imagination of it. So check that book out, Ready Player One.
1: If you're nostalgic for the old arcade days. Right, guys, thank you so much for checking out episode 10 of the Retro Hour. I can't believe it <laughs> and of course you can get the show every single Friday from the website com. iTunes if you listen on there please do leave a review we always appreciate the feedback yeah and YouTube as well subscribe and drop us a comment and uh, check out the shiny new website at com. now we'll leave you with this week's guest a little yes. chat about the uh, old school demo and- days Andrew
0: Barnabas is the man So, how did you uh, first start getting into computers then?
2: I was just a bit of a geek right from a very early age. My mum remembers that even age three or four, when the guy would come round to fix the washing machine, little three-year-old me would be very interested to see what it looked like inside. <laughs> Realised I was a bit of a nerd. And then uh, <clears> at <throat> so age seven, enrolled me as the youngest member of Croydon Computer Club. Oh, in 1980 I'm just giving away my age here so yes and what what
0: <laughs> systems would you be using in Croydon Computer Club
2: kind of research machines 480 Zs, 380z pre-basic uh, there was possibly a Commodore PET there there would have been uh, possibly a ZX80 I think a uh, Sinclair ZX80 was also probably there but, yeah, not, I can't remember. I was I was seven. It was a long time ago. I can't remember exactly what was there. But, yeah, some really old computers in Croydon Library <clears throat> full of some slightly dusty old geezers and massive huge computers which didn't do a great deal. You're
1: one of those kids that used to take everything apart in the house then, were you?
2: I wasn't quite that bad. But, yeah, I think if my mum had given me more screwdrivers, it would have been a much different way different picture. But, um, yeah, so basically I started... Uh, mucking around with computers probably about 1980. We didn't own own a home computer at home until 1986 when my mum got us a secondhand Commodore 64. So when we got our 64, we, we spent, I think every single day on the Easter holidays, we'd get up in the morning, spend all day on the computer, go, go to sleep, get up and do it again. And played an enormous amount of games and learned to program. Uh, I was interested in, obviously, basic was the first thing many people learned. And then uh, we got further into it, started um, dabbling with assembly language, machine code, and got further and further into that. Got, got quite involved in the demo scene. Um, first by responding to adverts on Zap64 magazine. Mm-hmm. Originally just a sort of, I think they just called it pen pals in, uh, in the back of the mag. And you just sort of send off a letter to somebody and go, yes, I'd like to sort of swap stuff with you. And then I, I remember right from the word go, somebody sent us a uh, uh, five and a quarter inch floppy full of a, it had a I think it was a music disc actually. Mm-hmm. I think it was a, a music by a, some some of that time demo scene composers. I we'd never seen anything like it or at that point we' just literally seen business stuff and games. and my brother and I was in, m- enormously intrigued by this and so we started looking more into it and and, and responding to more adverts and and the, the back of this actually default and getting more and more stuff from different demo demo scene crews more over the UK and started sort of writing the odd little demo to sort of show show to paper and everything else. You asked me how I got into computers, mm-hmm. but uh, what's sort of an interesting parallel is that it's almost exactly the same time I was getting into music. So this is why the two interests, sort of became um, pretty obvious kind of joined together. Go I was on.
1: going to say, with the Commodore 64, though, I mean, you were essentially banging the metal a lot of the time, weren't you, with the SID chip? It was, if you're doing it in basic, even that it was pokes and peaks and that kind of thing, wasn't
2: it? It was. Uh, Fitch Composer was, um, was a little bit more involved than that, fortunately, because... Mm-hmm. They had it was quite they had like a built-in drum set, for example, built-in bass sounds and everything else. so he was simply choosing kind of one of the presets which they uh, which they which they'd already invented. But the right thing about it is I loved I mean I loved Rob Hubbard's music. he was always my as someone regarded me as the Elvis in the 64. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Martin Galway, David Whitaker Ben Gleliche, all the, the the big famous UK um, composers. But then I also, but then when mainex Noise kind of made this uh, marvelous entrance, I forget what year they sort of came in, 87, 88, doing a lot of music for the, some of the Mastertronic games, which again being rather poor from that part and uh, those days, could only really afford the one ninety-nine, two ninety-nine games, rather than the, the enormously expensive $9.99 nine ninety-nine games, mm-hmm. and uh, and the music they had on those games were also equally brilliant but they, and you could tell being being kind of reasonably well known and successful on that you, you all, all the composers of those days had to write their own music engines they couldn't just pick one off the shelf mm-hmm. so you could tell a com a, a Rob Hubbard track many cases simply because of the sounds we use in the same way that you I could quite identify a David Whittaker one lesser Ben de Gleish and a bit more and Martin Galway but made some noise had a very distinctive sound and so when I could when I managed to get hold of a future composer Then that was clearly for me. That was one I was going to wanted to want to write.
0: I guess um, you could start using your knowledge of music notation and kind of stuff, and then using it with the computer. Then once this software came through.
2: Well, that's that's again. I think one of the reasons why it it made so much more sense to me is because a lot of people I know who are also sort of dabbling in music in the 664 demo scene. Most of them were predominantly programmers. They were very. They had very little. Sort of formal musical training, whereas I got to a musical school learning those instruments, music was I was already uh, pretty close to getting, and I felt I had already got my GCC music when the Amiga arrived. But anyway, so that was all one and good. But then when the Amiga arrived, what really changed for me was when someone showed me Soundtracker mm. the first, the, the original uh tracker program. The reason why that was so much more successful for me. It's because the way it, way you could see, effectively debug the music, it was all displayed in front of you. Whereas on on the Future Composer, you all you would see was like a series, a page of zeros and ones. After seeing that, I was just immediately hooked.
1: Well, I mean, even became... as a kid who came from the eight bit scene, I was the same as well. Did you find it was like it was like a quantum leap, wasn't it, going from like the Commodore sixty four to the Amiga? Just in everyday, you know, the graphics, the the GUI, for example. You know, before you jump into
2: Basic when you turn your C sixty four on. Did you have to like retrain yeah. yourself quite a lot then? I, I suppose like anything else, it's I'd I'd already experienced it from the from the likes of going over to friends friends going over to mates' houses who had a lot more money than we did. Mm-hmm. So they always had the newer thing much earlier than we did. So I'd already seen the 64 many years before we had one, in the same way I'd already seen the the Amiga, and I was I'm just so jealous. I remember going over to a friend's house in probably '87, eighty eight, and they just got hold of Style Glider too. I'm just looking at this, I was absolutely blown away by just how amazing it looked compared to the SC4. And then, from a musical perspective, I think there were, let me think, there were two tracks which immediately started kind of shone way above everything else. It was like, oh my God, that's real, real music. It was the title sequence, the uh, kind of the opening bits of, actually it was a Tim Folling track from a game called LED Storm. Mm-hmm. It was just kind of a nice, sort of synthy, washy bit before some guitars and beats came in. I just remember thinking, that just sounds amazing. But the other one as well was uh, Chris Schulzbeck's R-Type.
1: Oh yeah.
2: When yeah, I first saw sort of was... that, I was like, oh, that is just a an number. Again, real samples from, I mean, most of the samples were the core game one, but, very well done. In fact, I in fact I believe I nicked the snare drum from uh, <laughs> from art or use. I use it on many tracks of my own. Have you, you revealed that you... before? Well, this is another thing as well. That's 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 all also made this more of a challenge, I suppose, is that in my sort of education landscape as well as I am the music landscape. This is about 1989. 1990, I just finished this musical school, I went to a uh, local sixth form college, did A levels in course in music and computers. Getting and getting to meet more people, because obviously at that point when you get to A levels, there were more and more people who were specialised in doing music like you were. Most of them, if they wanted to express themselves musically by writing stuff, the only way you could do that cheaply was using a four-track, uh, which was effectively the old cassette format. Mm-hmm. But rather than just using, effectively, stereo on one side and stereo on the other time, it used both sides of the tape at the same time to enable you to record four different inputs.
0: Yeah, I remember so, those little mixers you could get, the uh, four-track mixers, yeah. Track yeah, mixes, yeah.
2: Right. And I realised that the Amiga, with its four channels of 8-bit mm. samples, was my equivalent that's exactly the same thing for me i had i had four channels which i could do whatever i wanted i could sample whatever i could get hold of but again the the limitation i had no money therefore my i didn't have any sound sources i didn't have any synthesizers i didn't have any samplers so i was first tracks were yeah just pretty much getting hold of soundtracker discs which obviously was a piece of pissed hmm. i could say pissed can't i <laughs> a piece of to nick, uh, to nick the samples and slowly build up your own collection of stuff. And of course, Soundtracker, when it first was sh- well, shipped, posted to me, it, it came with these, this famous STO-1, yeah. Um, the original Soundtracker sample. No sound sources of my own. I would try and acquire as many sounds as I could from other, basically ripping sounds from other people's modules and using their own stuff. Uh, I then went out and managed to find, I bought a master sound sample for £30, 30 pounds. Uh, which simply had a, uh, a mini-jack. And then I could go and plug in what I wanted, so I could borrow my mate's portable CD player and fire it and stuff. And, and the great thing about it is you start listening to music in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. You get all your pop stuff, you get all your albums, and you listen to stuff to see for exposed instruments. I can sit there and go, oh, that's a oh, that's a jumbly. It starts with a jumbly, on its own, I'm having that. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's brilliant, but there, it's just just, just, it's just gone down to a bass guitar. as a nice long bass. No, I like that, thank you very much. And then thinking again, where can we get a hold of of some new sounds? Now, I was already becoming quite friendly with a guy I met at a demo scene party who lived in uh, North London. He went by the name of Dark Elf. He had an Amiga 2000 with a hard drive. Those days, that was rocket science, Mm -hmm. seeing stuff load that quickly. And uh, he and I would spend a couple of weekends together, a month playing games and eating Chinese food and watching films in the mall. And his dad was a... um, I think it was a sound recorder, sound engineer for. I think it was a CBS or NBC, one of the big news uh, news places. And in fact, he was he went and captured sound for during the Iraq War. But as a result, he had a uh, really good home setup for uh, for sound. He had a couple of Nakamichi Dragon tape players, which were two grand. They had like Dolby S, which i would never even heard of. Best quality tape players I'd ever seen. He also had a portable. I think it was portable, certainly Walkman, but again, we wanted one you could record to. And so that was again that that was a game changer. He was quite a big lad, so he could put that so he could hide the the machine kind of under his left armpit. However, have a uh, <laughs> a mini jack would come down through his coat with whatever he was wearing in his arm and his sleeve. And then we would go to to music trade shows, walk around, put on a suit to look vaguely respectable to try and somehow blag a press pass or some kind of company bars. and then go up and go, oh, wow, that's the new Yamaha keyboard, that's the new Rodeo wasn't this is plug in the cable in the back. And then I would sit there and go, right, there's a C2, C3, C4, <laughs> so, and then choose different sounds, and go for that, and do a major, minor C, major, minor C, major, minor, different octaves, and try and record as many sounds as we possibly could before getting noticed by the uh, the attendant of this, uh, whoever was running the stand. That, that's a cheap way of building up an amazing sample library. <laughs> it is. It was a little bit limited, because of course, you'd never quite have the chord you wanted when you were doing a track. Mm-hmm. Correct. I think we it's fair have- to say
1: that the, you know, the, the Amiga demo scene and the C64 demo scene, that is is where the most creative people who eventually went on to work in the commercial industry um i think began would you agree that that was kind of a,
2: a hotbed of talent back then of course at the time i was involved i mean you, i mean like anything else at the time you don't really think you don't really think about it in that way you're thinking about it i just need to get a hold of something here what's the best way i can do it with, with limited resources um and, and obviously as soon as the internet became it changed the landscape of everything. Mm-hmm. See and there were a lot of there a lot of reasons why um, a lot more benefits, why they would initially initially these these sort of demo scene meetups were originally, they were originally called copy parties. Mm-hmm. Because that's really what they were. You're gonna to get together a group of a group of uh, demo scene dudes in a in a school hall in the middle somewhere on a, on a kind of Saturday during the day. And effectively they'd be all turning up with their stuff and piles and piles of floppy discs. And just effectively copying stuff for people. Ex copy going all day. Yeah. <laughs> ex We all day. You know. Yeah. It was. It was. Yeah. Poor. Poor drives. I didn't know what it hit them. I suppose I didn't really know. But from my perspective, I was. I'm guessing that the reason why the demo scene kind of grew from that, and therefore that's why. That's why. And that's because. And that's because, That's where the meetings became more. Prevalent in terms of let's also while we're copying the games let's add some other stuff to spice up let's look see let's see what other demo people have brought along with them let's make it into a competition let's see let's get some artists to come together and bring a, you know they've done a great bit of work in julux paint let's put them over an art competition let's have a let's go another go a lot of composers turn up with a copy you know with their with their latest modules and let's see where a music competition goes I can see it evolving. Clearly from there. But initially, I believe that the reason why it all started the first place is because they were effectively copying stuff.
0: So you had the uh, group of guys, you had the collection of samples. How did this lead to you getting to do your most famous tune, Swiv?
2: Well, okay. Um, The initial start, in fact, I've actually just written this. Uh, I actually wrote a sort of a tribute yesterday because rather sadly... I don't know if you're aware, there was a guy called uh, Fergus McGovern, who was the managing director of Probe Software, which was a big games developer back in the uh, 80s and 90s, who sadly, died uh, all of a sudden on last, I think it was just over a week ago. Yeah,
1: we covered it in our show but, last week, actually. Very sad news.
2: Yeah, it? it was, and uh, he was based in Croydon. So I will, I will sort of regard this talk because it's sort of vaguely relevant. Croydon, obviously, being where I'm from, um, then what happened is that uh, I was beginning to go to these sort of demos and events, and I started entering musical auditions. I, I think the first one I, I entered, I, I came third, and the second two, I, I won. So um, I was getting noticed by people who were there. And there were a lot of people there, a few years older than me, who were, who were in the demo scene, but actually worked in the games industry. And they would quietly say to me, can't say to me, you know, this, this This stuff is good enough to go into games. And I was really, I'm, I'm a 16 year old kid. I'm not going to be thinking, that's a real person's job. Why am I doing that? But I did sort of go away and think about it. I went, you know, maybe they are. What's the, help? What's the worst that it can happen? So, being from Corin, I looked up and, uh, and there were two local developers, a company called Grand Slam and Probe Software. I contacted them both and Probe invited me to their offices. And they offered me, uh, they basically just started listening to some of the music. And Fergus, the guy who ran the company, walked into the meeting, and so I had a little listen to my very basic, simple modules at the time, and liked them. And they're on the spot, said, how about, would you like to kind of write, write music for this game called Supremacy? And I was like, uh, okay, uh, come and write in our offices. But wasn't an orchestral score. And the truth is, I had no orchestral samples at all. I had no access to anything like that at all. So I really wasn't a cat's in hell chance that I would have a go. And I've obviously I've never even tried to write an orchestral piece of music, let alone on the Amiga. So, of course, that was never really going to happen. So it ended up being actually written by uh, Jerome and Tell, one of the uh, Manix and Noise guys who'd done some brilliant work for them, probably won a few other games, mostly most renowned for their work on Turbo Art 1 for Probe. Anyway, so it didn't happen. But what it did do... It just sort of made me think, because I remember being in that, in that rather hot, sweaty uh, office of theirs and thinking, oh, I like this. This is cool. This is a wicked place to be. So during the summer holidays of that year in 1990, I rang up all the, com- the companies which advertised in Zap 64 the uh, rather big magazine at the time. Got the standard fob off for most of them. I literally rang up and said, who does music for your games? So they put me through to another band of staff. And they would put the, yes, please, by all means, send in a, a floppy disk of your work and we'll put you on file and blah, blah, blah. The polite fob off, but with the possible, that it might actually go. Got a call from them a month later. Sales cover based in Battersea. And they said that we are, they're finishing off their, their game they worked on for the last year, year or two. With they one i come kind of looking for some title music. Could I come in and play them some stuff now? I'm a firm believer that you know, the timing and everything else is great, is, is very, very, very important factor in these things. Mm. And it was I'd literally contacted them in September. And so clearly I was still in their short term memory a few weeks later in October. But I remember going in there. I believe it was October the 15th, 1990. And I, I remember, actually, I do remember walking there and it was quite a big room, probably 10, 15, 20 guys in there. And they had a computer in the corner, a Mega 500 in the corner. And I was so nervous that I literally fired it up and just stared at the screen. I refused to look around. I was just so nervous of what I just came about. So I blinkered myself and stared at the screen. And just basically slowly played um played game. You know, played a, a track which I'd written for whatever reason, either just for fun or for whatever. And there were kind of fair few guys laughing and joking and milling around in the background. And uh, I would just sort of play a track. And this one track which I'd written for um a demo which hadn't been released called Decimation. They all went quiet. Again, refusing to lurk around and thinking, they hate it, it's awful. The uh, the producer tapped on my shoulder and said, um, we would like to buy this piece of music as the title music for our game. <laughs> I was like, really? Okay. And uh, I think for me, what made it particularly poignant was the fact that um, yeah, the high school music, in fact, I think the high school music from Swiv has the snare drum, which I pinched from R-Type. <laughs> Sorry, Chris, I'm going, to say, I'm going to fess up to that now. got a lot of use, didn't it, that snare drum? <laughs> I believe I used the same snare drum sample that he used in our time, because it's a brilliant <laughs> snare drum. Sample.
0: And it's a and really good a- tune as well. Like the samples, <laughs> I love them at the beginning, and then it goes into the 80s <laughs> vibe. It's not great. It's
2: very 80s. But again, I was, and, and the funny thing is, I wrote it originally for, I could even vaguely remember, they showed me, the guy who was writing the demo at the group XC I was in, uh, He'd shown me kind of ideas of what he was going to do, so I'd, wrote, I'd written it to kind of match the three different areas of the um, of the demo. Demo actually never got finished, so it was largely pointless. But I'd written the sort of the '80s drum bit for like a kind of more actiony bit, and the opening sort of more ethereal bit, for, again for sort of a sp- spacey type thing he was doing. So yeah, it was a very for me. I can still listen to it now and thinking I knew what that was supposed to be attached to. Yeah. <laughs>
0: it's then, like wow. kind of a dark goffy 80s or kind of, you <laughs> yeah,
2: know. It, it totally is. And uh, I forget exactly where I I've <laughs> got the samples from a variety of different places. But yeah, it was one of those strange things. It was great to sort of suddenly see how your people people lift up and, and sort of get so, and I got asked, oh, it's funny to say you say that, I still get emails about it now, 25 years later.
0: <laughs> wow. But yeah,
2: anyway, so, uh, so for so the next trade show uh, we went to, I think uh, Bobby and I were trying to blag our way in and uh, this time we had to, rather than just giving our names, we had to give a company name and so we decided to make up a company name of Dense Design. Dense Design, because his computer name was Dark Elf and my computer name was Nightshade, so DNS, Night mm-hmm. Design, it's quite, it's illiterate, it's quite nice so we'll just do that. And I hadn't really thought about trying to get more work and everything else, we were just simply like just sort of, Still buzzing from the fact that we done we done Swift. But I remember going up to I think it was accolade. They were test drive, remember the game test drive? Brilliant mm-hmm. game. They had uh they were they were sh- they were test driving their new version of the game. And I remember going, oh, can we go and have a go at it? Yeah, brilliant. Okay, absolutely. So I'm playing this. And this woman just looked at my badge and looked up at me while I was Said, So what can you design for us? <laughs> and I went, uh, what? Uh, what? Sorry, <laughs> no, I understand the question. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, we do music the games. Oh, great. Um, got a business card? Uh, no. Uh, got a show wheel. Uh No. But you know what? If you give me your card, <laughs> I can tell you something. <laughs> completely anatomy. Get you a jiffy bag Ill- in the post. <laughs> <laughs> we're actually completely ill prepared for this thing. But that's, again, that, that spark is what it needed. Because at that point and suddenly this trade show took a whole new landscape uh, at that point then we decided we were going to go around and just chat to all the companies and offer our services because literally we only put it down on the form to blag our way in free for whatever this trade show computer show was in order to get in we hadn't really thought about anything more than that but put on the spot of course that's what we're going to be doing but i so i went and see all the companies in fact i was offered a job at probe probe software um Focus McGovern's company. I hadn't, I'd done, I'd, hadn't written music for the Supremacy back in 1990, but and I never thought I'd hear them again. But in early 1995, I had a phone call from a uh, guy called Tim May, who a producer there, saying he'd my, get my name from somewhere. Would I like to come in and work on the music for FIFA '96 on the SNES and the Mega Drive? So I spent, of course, a yes, not having a single clue how to the music on the Mega Drive and the SNES because. The the dev kits for those machines were particularly expensive. I wasn't registered. I was never going to be. It was kind of prohibitively expensive for me at the time. But I knew a little bit about them from a technical perspective. So I went in there and worked with their wonderfully talented in house guy, Andy Brock, I became good friends with. And we spent a month or so working on that in 1995. And in fact, they offered me a job. But at that point, I had already uh, agreed, uh, been to a trade show, and visited a studio in Cambridge, where I live Now. now. Uh, a company called Millennium Interactive I'd known about them for a number of years i would never got any work with them because I'm working with a guy called Richard Joseph they the reason I chose to go for a job there is because they had they had built simply the best recording studio I had ever seen a games company build um, they spent about a third of a million quid if I'm right wow. um, and back from a purely audiophile geek perspective they had 32 track Pro Tools back in 1995 in 1995.
1: Well, obviously, after that, so, with with games, though, I mean, you kind of went from that, you know, the, the digital kind of, you know, your pro tracker stuff, and um, but then you went to see the audio around that time as well. Did you notice that was a massive change?
2: Well, that was probably the single biggest change because you were going from SID chip music, or basically music being generated simply by the the sound chip of the device you were working with, to sample sample bit sample being triggered on the Amiga and the, the SNES, and to a lesser extent the Mega Drive and uh and then of course but what really what made cd what sorry what made uh Discord audio available was basically the advent of cd rom but yeah again it all changed i would say the most well the most popular oh, was it my popular probably wasn't my popular cd baseball must have been the playstation which came out in august i think august 24th 1995. i remember having dinner with a guy called phil Harrison because he was my mentor in the games and she was a uh, brother-in-law Him t- telling me that the, the world is PlayStation. Which is the point at that point in time, it really was in the gaming world. Sony had come out of absolutely nowhere in 1995, or at least the PlayStation totally wiped the floor with the likes of the Mega Drive and the Snares. Do you remember the first time you saw it? Oh, absolutely. Um, well, I, I well, I originally I saw the regional T Rex demo at one of the trade shows. I think Phil Harrison was actually demonstrating it in 90, probably 1995 or 1994. But in fact, the day it came out. Um, my, my boss at the time, Chris Homer, he went into shop and bought one. I think it was four or five hundred quid, I can't remember. And uh, I think we had, was it Wipeout and yeah, Ridge yeah. Racer and possibly Tekken or something like that? And installed, yeah, and basically bought it in and plugged it into the studio. And people were coming in and we were playing. It might be, it might be I forget it was Wipeout or Wipeout. But I, but I remember obviously being just blown away by the graphics. But from a sound perspective, hearing the real tunes come out of the machine. Because I mean, Wipeout had one of the first games to really make use of a licensed track to make it. I mean, why bad? just uh, was one of those just like, it's just the epitome of cool. It had the designers of the Republic doing the, um, the graphic design on it, I think on the game as well as the box, the art and everything else. And had these tracks for, I think it was Tech, did had done a track. Prodigy on there know. as well, wasn't
0: it? Firestarter. Oh. Yeah, yeah, there? Firestarter.
2: Yeah, Prodigy. I think there was. It might have been a few Sound of London track mm-hmm. on there. But the rest was written by the in-house composer Tim Wright and Mike Clark, who also did a fabulous yeah. job.
0: Yeah, we've uh, just had them on, actually.
2: They're, well, they're lovely charts aren't they? Yeah. Um. Anyway, so and I remember hearing this CD-quality music, playing Wipeout in this great a uh, nice sound system in the studio. But the mo well the thing that was really struck me is when you went into a tunnel, everything had reverb. It suddenly sounded like I was in a tunnel. This is the first time I had ever experienced this before. I thought like, this is amazing. Because the PlayStation had a built-in hard, had a built-in hardware reverb. So you could sit there and make it sound echo without using any CPU tiles. Oh, this was amazing. <laughs> and so yes and it was great because obviously then working with then Sony behind the company, it was it was the only platform which we were working on.
1: Well, Andrew, we've uh, we've actually come to the end of our show. now because we're only an hour long anyway, but it's. Uh, well, so it on, haven't I? Yeah, no, yeah. it's been absolutely fascinating reminiscing about the old days. And uh, just quickly, buddy, if people want to catch up with what you're doing these days, where can they find out?
2: Okay, well, uh, websites. In a, in a nutshell, we are uh, Bob and I. Well, Paul Arnold, who we named Bob, we left Sony in 2001. as started own company called Bob and Barn, and now we seem to do more work on games as well, but for TV. So we have a website, uh, BobandBarne.com, B-O-B-A-N-D-B-A-R-N.com, which we very rarely update, we're terrible. Uh, We have a Facebook page, same thing, which again, probably update more regularly. And uh, what I'm up to at the moment? Well, this year, we've quite randomly done the music for a TV show which aired on Channel 4 here in the UK called Dispatches. And the big one is we are writing music for a launch title for PlayStation VR. Um, which is coming out, I think, towards the end of the year. It's called Riggs. It's a mech uh, warrior game. We're going to be recording a uh, month or two's time. We're going to be recording an orchestra and a choir, and guitars and various instruments for that. But there you go. So, Sounds
0: excellent, Andrew.
2: Yeah, well, the,
1: the VR stuff's quite a leap forward from Swiv, isn't it? Yeah. Just a bit. <laughs> well, Andrew, thank you so much. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. Speak soon.